2: You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing today? I hope you're okay. Today, the sky is blue. I'm looking out. The sky is blue and the sun is shining. And there are about three billion flies outside my window. It's that very odd time. I tend to record these a couple of weeks in advance. And it's that very odd time when we've got the weird warm weather. And mutant flies, mutant wasps I just roll on the cold, is all I can say. Because I don't like this. I'm fearful of going out and opening my mouth have things fly in. Anyway, there we are. Oh my goodness, we've got some great books. Well, I've got a range of things to talk to you about today. Today is a different day. And as well as that, of course, we've got the great book club that's going on on the Facebook group. You'd be very welcome to join us there. So what books are we featuring today? We are featuring West Hart Kill by Dan McDormand. And Dan is very kindly coming on to talk to us about that. Now, the next chat we're going to have, this is going to be a little bit different. And it's with Lawrence Kilpatrick from The Pigeonhole Don't know if you've heard of The Pigeonhole, but it's a service where you can read books. The other books I'm going to feature, the first one is Lark Rise to Candleford by Flora Thompson. Now, for the other podcast I do, All About the Archers, we've just reviewed that book on there. So if you, I think if you want a bit of a laugh, We had fun recording that. You can listen to that or, of course, watch that on YouTube as well. But after I read Lark Rise to Candleford, I immediately switched to a slightly different book, which was Carrie by Stephen King, would you believe? And then finally, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Those are your books. Let's get started. So the first book, as I say, is West Heart Kill by Dan McDorman. And let me read you the blurb of this one. It's the 4th of July weekend at the prestigious West Heart Country Club. Gathered for cocktails on the first evening are just some of the guests. The club president, the treasurer and his pregnant wife, the snooping schoolboy, the bereaved father, the caretaker, the prospective member. And there will also be a body and a private detective and a fiendish mystery to solve. But everything else is all to play for. And you're about to find out that you have a role to play in this mystery too. This book is so different and so glorious. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But let's go and talk to Dan McDormand now. It is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Dan McDorman, author of West Heart Kill. Dan, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Oh, I'm so glad you're coming on to talk about this book. Can we start by you giving us a bit of a summary of it?
3: Yes. So it's a metafictional murder mystery set at a elite hunting club in upstate New York in the 1970s. And it's it has all the things you would want from a, a classic sort of golden age mystery. It has a murderer. It has a detective. And it has a body count. It has love, revenge, betrayal, money, buried secrets, all of that kind of juicy, fun stuff. And then layered on top of it are a bunch of literary shenanigans going on. So the first thing that readers will notice is that it's written in the second person, the U, for the sort of bedrock foundation of the novel, which is a little unusual for a mystery. And this you is essentially the imaginary reader of the book. And then on top of that, there are a lot of allusions to other mysteries, to other writers. There are breakout essays that sort of tackle this or that important tradition in the genre, whether it's the locked room or the dying message or what really happened when Agatha the Christie disappeared, why Dashiell Hammett embedded this cryptic little parable in the middle of the Maltese Falcon, all of those sorts of things. And they're not extraneous. They all relate to the plot of the characters one way or another. That by the end of the book, if I've done my job right, the reader has gotten both a sort of page-turning mystery but also an overview of the genre itself.
2: And this ode to some of the other classic books was that something that you very much intended to do before you started writing it or did it come about because it just felt part of the book?
3: It came out pretty organically. It I didn't I didn't intend to write a book like this at all. Like my intention at the start was to write something pretty straightforward. I fell into the voice almost immediately and then other I started having these other weird ideas that seemed too good not to do. I I was a huge fan of the genre, but I, I, I didn't know if I necessarily was qualified to write one that seemed very presumptuous of me. So I was doing a, a ton of research as I was writing it, and I found that stuff fascinating. And then at some point I was like, I think readers would find this stuff fascinating too, and I could see a, a way where it links in. So I started putting the text and started the story, and the, these essays grew together in a very exciting way and started to play off each other in a way that was very cool.
2: And it's fair that the genre is quite a busy space, and yet you managed to create something groundbreaking is a strong word, but very unusual. Did, did it feel different as you were writing it? It did,
3: but I, I didn't realize, and this is my debut novel, I, when I was writing it, I was done before I ever had agent or publisher or anywhere. So I was essentially just writing for myself, and there were no expectations, and I was just having fun with it. So I, I wasn't if I'd thought too much about it, I probably would have been intimidated. But I was just, it was all in the spirit of forcing around early.
2: And where did you get the initial idea from? Presumably, you, well, you're a busy man, so you thought, I'd love to write a book. But when did you get this idea?
3: So the long story, which I'll make short, and the sob story, is that i have wanted <laughs> to be a writer for my whole life and went, it went nowhere. And so through college and all my 20s, I'm, dashing off stories and mail them across the country. I never heard back about anything. So sometime in early 30s, I think I just, I'm 47 now. Early 30s, I gave up. I'm like, this is not working. Time to be a grown-up, pack away these sort of childish dreams, focus on job and family and stuff. And then so a couple summers ago, I had, out of nowhere, I had this idea of just writing the dust jacket copy for an imaginary book, which became this book. And it had a detective, it had a setting, it hinted at at all these plot twists and crazy turns in the narrative, none of which I'd invented yet. But I looked at it, I was like, oh, this sounds fun. Maybe I'll get back to it and try it again. So I did.
2: Oh, wow, (laughs) that's quite a story. I believe you're going to read us a little bit from the book.
3: Yes, this is from the near the beginning. For people who haven't read the book, the, the detective and a friend are on their way to the hunting club under somewhat mysterious circumstances at the beginning. This is in the overall vein of the you, the second person, so I'll read that. Is our protagonist, then, a private detective? You feel the book settle into the comfortable formula of its genre. Of course there is a detective. There must be a detective. Very well, then. You can perceive the contours of the plot ahead, anticipate its false clues and blind alleys, the way in which this writer will try to conceal a truth in plain sight, like a purloined letter on a mantelpiece. You just hope that the rules of the form are followed, Is a mystery that cheats is the worst kind of fraud. But we'll return to those rules later, for now the car's wheels are crunching on gravel as it turns off the main highway, and onto the unpaved road that must lead to the hunting club, and, you anticipate happily, to death. Orange no trespassing signs are nailed to trees along the road, each emblazoned with the name of the club, West Hart, and its insignia a bear's head with two rifles crossed behind it, resembling, you can't help but think, a skull and crossbones.
2: Thanks so much for that, Dan. Can you tell us a little bit more without giving away any spoilers about (laughs) the main characters we'll come across in the book?
3: Yeah, so you're introduced to them pretty early on. It's set in 1976. The detective is a mid-30s veteran of the Vietnam War, so he comes in that way, his connection to the club. The first apparent connection is that he went to college with briefly before he dropped out with someone who lived there. And the club, I won't go into too many details about the characters, but the club is full. It's an old money, old sort of world, at least for an American perspective, community, very wealthy people who have grown up in this hunting club for all their lives with all of the entanglements that brings. And so there are long standing, forlorn, frustrated love affairs. There are longstanding feuds, if not vendettas. There are people who know each other very well and are forced to see each other over drinks at all the major holidays and who love and loathe each other in equal amounts. And so it's into this cauldron of bitterness and sadness at a turbulent time in American history that the detective enters.
2: And what a story. Let's talk about the pace. How did you manage to keep the pace going in such a sort of engrossing way? The, so the entire novel unfolds over
3: the course of a long holiday weekend, the 4th of July weekend, which I'm a sucker for those kinds of stories that, that, that take place in a very confined time and space. One of the Patrick Melrose novels does that at, at a weekend getaway, others. And so that alone helps you get gallop along because it's, it's the morning, then it's the evening, then it's the very next day, and you only have a couple more days to go. It, it packs a lot in. And mysteries are, are, by and large, are about plot and atmosphere. Sometimes those conflict, if you dwell too long on atmosphere, it takes away from the plot vice versa. I tried to strike a balance, but it hurries along, especially as I write in the book. Once the setup in mysteries is usually a little bit leisurely, you get the lay of the land, you get into it. And then once the first body drops, off you go. And from that point on, it, it's a different kind of experience, which I hope I reflected in the book.
2: Being an author isn't your main job. Tell us a bit about what
3: you do. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a producer at MSNBC in the United States, which for people who don't know, it's a 24-hour cable news channel. It is, yeah, it's a lot. And it's, generally speaking, very demanding. I wrote this book during COVID when we were still working remote, which essentially just in a time that I was given back to me by not commuting and by not taking my kids to school because they had aged out of, they no longer wanted me to take them to school and they're taking this away. I live in New York City, in Brooklyn, they're taking somebody to school by themselves. So I had, a, I had a couple hours at least each day that I didn't have before. And so I was able to use that time for the book.
2: And with your work, I imagine every word counts and there's a pressure on time. And again, the pace there. Were there any of those sort of skill sets that you use and come across in your work that you then applied to the book? I think the only thing, essentially,
3: no. <laughs> the only thing that might have informed it is that essentially I've been writing on a daily deadline for TV for more than 20 years. And if anything, that maybe helped me not be too precious about the first draft, just get it down, get it on the page. As opposed to when I was younger, I was I would labor over every single sentence. It had to be perfect, which is ridiculous. So I think it helped in that way probably.
2: But which was the hardest word to write for this book?
3: What was hardest for me was the and this maybe for other writers, mystery writers too, I don't know, was just hammering out the plot. And because the voice and the atmosphere all came very easily. All the essays and other allusions to the thing were just super fun. But figuring out, okay, why did this happen? And who? And why? And how? Was the hardest part and the part that I felt least equipped to handle.
2: And have you been haunted by any of the characters? Again, no spoilers, but have any of the characters stayed in your mind after you finished writing?
3: Yeah, so the it's the detective and then particularly the women characters, there are three women characters in this book, each of whom are trapped in this world that they were born into and in various kind of sad ways, too middle-aged in their 40s like me. And for people in there, they missed the 60s, all the fun. And they were married by the time the pill came. And, and so the 60s was what happened to other people. And they're locked in this time. And then there's a very young woman who is being, who I hope, as the novel goes on and it's in another life, the characters continue on past the end of the page, that she's able to escape.
2: Very good. We come to the final question, which is the one we ask all authors on this, Dan. So please prepare yourself. And it's what biscuit, or for you, what cookie was powering the writing of West Hart Kill.
3: So I am a, I am just a classic chocolate chip cookie kind of guy. (laughs) Uh, So that's the go-to. I will confess there wasn't a lot of biscuit eating during it, but there was a, the amount of coffee consumed is just staggering and almost certainly unhealthy. So there you go.
2: (laughs) That's great. It's just wonderful to talk to you and hear more about West Hart Kill. Dan McDormand, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Coming up, one more interview and more book reviews.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
3: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: So now we go on to the pigeonhole. And I think rather than me try and give a very bad introduction, I think we should just get straight into it and hear from Lawrence all about this service and what's involved and how it might benefit you as a reader. It is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Lawrence Kilpatrick from the pigeonhole for something different. Lawrence, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thanks, Philippa. Very nice to be here.
2: I think quite a few of us have heard about The Pigeonhole, but perhaps I think we need a bit of a refresh. And for those who've never come across the name, can you give us an idea of what's involved?
4: Absolutely. So I'm the manager of The Pigeonhole, have been for a few years now, and we have offerings kind of two sides, the author side and the reader side. I'll start with the reader side is probably more relevant we're the big, biggest online digital book club in europe i haven't checked worldwide but we are pretty big and i don't really know of any competition and we run serializations we break books up into normally about 10 parts we let all of our users know that they are free everything's free to sign up for these books and then we release those books and the idea is that people move through serializations at the same speed so you kind of stop once you get to chapter two people leave comments the author can be involved too so they can be part of the serialization they can also contribute bits of extra content so you have like videos and q a's and bits of research they did during the book so you have this kind of digital town square where people are talking about the book and you get these kind of rises in conversation towards the end of we call them staves, the installments, and you get these rises in conversation, people exchanging theories, and then everyone moves through at the same speed with the final stave normally being released roundabout about publication day, with the idea being that um, people then move to review sites, whatever the publisher has decided they prefer. And then we have this kind of groundswell of social media coverage and reviews around the book's publication. It's amazing for all different types of authors, first-time authors, self-published authors, huge brand authors. So we've run everything from Sophie Kinsella and Ken Follett and Ian McEwan, Jodie Piku, Jeffrey Archer, all the way through to authors who have written their first book. And they've got a little bit of marketing budget and they want to create a new audience or get some kind of following because as any authors listening will know it is difficult to kind of create that kind of marketing noise around your book writing it is hard enough and then getting people to read it is also difficult if you aren't kind of even if you're with a publishing house publishing houses tend to kind of back a few winning horses and then a lot of the other books are kind of left without much budget to play with so you could be delighted and huge achievement to kind of get signed to the publishing house but then when it comes to it and your book isn't getting marketed you might feel a little bit shortchanged because you've gone to all of the trouble of writing this book and having it signed and doing all of that amazing work. And then it, publication day is something of a kind of damn squib. And this was a challenge in COVID because what well, we thought it would be, but it actually turned out to be kind of a boon for us because authors lost all of the live events, tours, those sorts of things. So what we started doing during COVID was amping up our kind of like digital launches so we would do live reader events with authors the author would come on maybe with three staves to go we'd organize a time they would do a little reading and then we had a guest list of our users who would sign up to get involved and then you could ask the author engage them talk to them about the book and that's just pretty amazing for especially authors who aren't kind of expecting a lot of fanfare on their book being published especially in covid even some of the bigger authors like it really provided an outlet for that engagement with their reader base so that more or less covers the reader side and kind of touched on the publisher side so we are a marketing service essentially so we try and work with everyone we have a flexible pricing structure and we try and enable Everyone to work with us, whether that's just changing the kind of scope of projects in order to make it possible for a self published author with their own marketing budgets versus working with the bigger publishers that we work with Penguin, Pan Mac, Collins, Bloomsbury, Head of Zeus, lots of these kind of big names of publishing. So we try and be as adaptable as possible. And yeah, the other thing to say maybe is genres. So we, over the years, we've probably serialized every type of book including some nonfiction, I think our absolute sweet spot would be kind of plot-driven commercial fiction. Not saying that we don't have some literary fiction and have kind of more kind of cerebral stuff on the platform, and it does do well, but the things that are kind of having readers chomping at the bit at the end must stay like furious that they they can't carry on reading. Those are the ones where you really see like a great energy in the book. And often people are so kind of keen to get going they'll just they'll just buy the book they can't bear to wait if it's published at that time the final thing we do is we also work with companies and corporations who are looking to run book clubs so they'll come to us and they'll say we want all of our staff to read a book about uh, diversity or management or leadership we go away we find a book and then we can in their own kind of little private walled garden of the pigeonhole 100 people from x company can um, read the book together and exchange ideas with their colleagues. Wow. So that's the kind of third R of the business. That's,
2: that's very clever indeed. In some ways, I mean, we've just started a much smaller book club on the podcast Facebook group. We're doing one book and we're reading it over a month. So each week we're reading a number of chapters. So in a way, it's a similar approach and we're getting to that stage all together and discussing it. And then moving on to the next stage. Let me ask some really stupid questions here. Okay. okay. So, first of all, are the books abridged when people read them or are they the full book?
4: They are always the full book.
2: Okay. Next stupid question Are you vetting the books? You know, is there a certain quality? If it's being offered by Pigeonhole,
4: do we think, oh, this is worth a read? When we work with publishers, The vetting process is on the publisher side there because this book has been through all of the gatekeepers and it might not be everyone's cup of tea, but like editorially and um, kind of structurally, the book is like going to make sense and be cohesive. When we work with self-published authors and people who are coming from non-traditional like publishing paths, then that is when our vetting process comes in. And so you can, you go through our website, the kind of sign up path, and we have some criteria that we assess and along the lines of how many books have you published, where are these books listed? And if you don't have any of those, it doesn't mean that we're not going to publish you, but it does mean that we're going to want to see kind of a chapter sample from different parts of the book. And then we assess whether we're going to put it on the platform because we, we're not, we don't want to be a gatekeeper, but also... It would be kind of an odd platform if, on the one hand, you had an Ian McEwan, and then you had some kind of like harebrained adventure. So yeah, we do like to keep a kind of like parameters on what we're sharing.
2: That makes sense. Next stupid question: You mention often the books are you get the final stave near publication, so people are able to read books that haven't yet been
4: published or read most of the the
2: majority of the book before it's been published. Is that right?
4: Yeah, that's remiss of me not to mention, because that is a huge draw. You're starting to read a brand new book for free before anybody else has. I mean, there'll be some ARC copies out there. And so you might say that one of our competitors would be someone like NetGalley. But to us, and I think a lot of our users do use that as well. But to us, it's a totally separate experience you're kind of siloed reading your book in a very kind of just the normal way of reading a book on your own versus being part of this community which is like very encouraging for comments and for authors and all of the rest and it's dead exciting like 10 days before the vast majority of the population you're there seeing the conclusion of the book so i think a lot of people enjoy that Kind of
2: too. Oh, gosh, yes. Next stupid question, probably the final most stupid question, there'll probably be some more, is about the format of the book. Now, I'm assuming that you don't rip a printed book up into 10 pieces and sort of post them into people's letterboxes <laughs> each week. I'm, or, or, and it's not audiobook. I'm
4: presuming that this is electronic. So we do actually offer some audiobook capacity now if that's oh. something that publishers are interested in so we can have the audio alongside text but our tech isn't quite at the point where we can kind of what you'd imagine a kind of karaoke ball kind of situation (laughs) bouncing along the bottom you can either listen or you can read so it kind of impacts a little bit on commenting because people are pressing listen and they're not kind of engaging in the same way in terms of breaking the book up we will always talk to publishers and ask them whether They have a preference on where these staves are going to end, whether there are particular cliffhangers. Otherwise, we will do it ourselves. But yes, all of this is digital. We receive a file from the publishers and chop it up ourselves. And you can read on any device, phone, iPad, Kindle, not quite. You can just about read on a Kindle Fire, but Kindle doesn't, because it doesn't have its own app base, it's, it's kind of a little bit more difficult for us. And we are just a small company, so... We had to go in stages. We built the iOS app first, and then we built the Android app. Those are our two. That's the best way to read is on the app. So sometimes a publisher will send us a PDF and we explain to them we can't use a PDF because a PDF is just kind of a picture of a book page. And if you imagine, I want this to fit onto my old iPhone, but I also want it to fit onto my brand new iPad. And those screens are very different sizes. So the text needs to be malleable to like kind of expand and fit without kind of looking haywire on different devices. Sorry, a bit of a boring text. No, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's useful to know.
2: So people really would be reading this on their computers, their phones, their iPads, rather than the the Kindle device, as you say.
4: Yeah, exactly. And some we we do get the occasional message from people who would like to read it on their Kindle, but because that would negate any of the commenting it's kind of it's not like our yeah like on to kind of
2: yes yeah, so you want them to read what, it and comment right there and then
4: yeah because the commenting is so important for us it's mm. it just kind of snowballs into every element of the book is like the more comments you get the more engagement you get the more the author feels like it's a special a special event and then the more the author is involved the more it encourages people to leave reviews because they leave kind of come personally invested in this author's journey and what's some of the nicest experiences are when kind of early career authors use the pigeonhole and you see them come back and back and back and they're doing that their third fourth book on the pigeonhole and people are still coming back to read their books and we've also launched something recently which is our kind of beta reading service whereby if you just want your book isn't quite ready it's maybe second draft it's okay to be seen but it's not ready to be published we offer a service where we will provide kind of 25 beta readers to go through your book provide feedback and that is markedly cheaper than a full serialization but it can be very useful if you're looking for okay where are people dropping off where are people getting confused like almost functions as a kind of like crowdfunding editorial service
2: a lot more views than just getting one person to read it and and give their verdict on twenty five independent views from people who love reading. I mean that's gold dust. I'd have thought.
4: Yeah, exactly. So it's something we're trying to share at the minute.
2: Can people set up their own book clubs on the site? Is that something that can be done?
4: Yeah, you can set up your own book club with our books that are permanently available. So I should explain that too. When we run a project with a new book. Um, it's available for the 10 days of the serialization. And then around about two weeks after the final stage, we give people time to finish. But then that book is removed from the pigeonhole because people are sometimes a bit miffed by this, but I don't, there's no reason why a publisher would make a book freely available on the pigeonhole indefinitely. I totally understand why they want it to come off the pigeonhole. So then it comes off. So you can't make a book club with those new books but we have a huge stable of classics everything that's on kind of gutenberg is is there because that was something we did kind of more in our early days so if you want to kind of read great expectations with five of your friends you can absolutely do that and set up a, a group
2: great so that's another route to it
4: yeah if people like the idea of this where should they go what should they do they should search for us on twitter and facebook and follow our updates there and our website is Pigeonhole. And a lot of people don't know how to spell pigeon. So that's P-I-G, like a pig, Eon, hole. The amount of... <laughs> so we do a lot of looking up who's left reviews for our books, kind of on review sites. And every time I type in P-I-D-G-P-O-N, hole, there's a lot of results. Even people who've been using the pigeonhole for years—it's one of the English language's most poorly spelled words. So I suppose maybe we shouldn't include it in the name of the business. But anyway, the pigeonhole with one g dot com, and then you can create an account for free, sign up for books, and start commenting.
2: Fantastic. We come to the final question. You're on this podcast, Lawrence, so you're going to be asked it, and that is the biscuit question. What biscuits are you eating when you're reading? The books that are published on
4: Pigeonhole. That's an interesting question. Okay. So at the minute, what are they even called? You can buy them at Aldi. They're kind of a knockoff. They're like biscuit on both sides and then like like milk chocolate through the middle. They're called like quick snap or snap something. But are those like a bourbon? Or? No, biscuit is pale brown. And okay. you know those fancy German biscuits that are like a square?
2: Oh, yes. It's yeah. like
4: those, but stuck back to back with chocolate in the middle are they
2: worth seeking
4: out then is that something they're about a pound for five in aldi and they're incredible
2: how long would that last you how many staves of a
4: pigeonhole book would that last i have a debilitating sweet tooth that's what i'm about to go and do is go and have a biscuit and a cup of coffee is how i start the day (laughs)
2: Lawrence. it's just wonderful to talk to you and hear more about the pigeonhole it just sounds like a fantastic resource. As long as you're okay reading on a screen, it it sounds like a huge amount of fun to be had in covering a book with a like-minded group of people.
4: Yeah, and we have lots of kind of accessibility features too. You can make the text as big as you want, you can change it to a black background or a yellow background or change the font. So if you want a kind of community based reading app where you can meet and talk to people, I really, I really think people will enjoy it.
2: Lovely. Just thank you so much for your time, Lawrence Kilpatrick of The Pigeonhole.
4: Thanks very much, Philippa. Pleasure.
2: I should say, I'm not sponsored by these companies. I just, if I think that something sounds good and that you'd like to know about it, I include it. So, yes, (laughs) please don't think this episode is sponsored by Pigeonhole. It's just... Sounds good. Let's jump in. Anyway, so that was Lawrence Kilpatrick from The Pigeonhole. Now we move on to Lark Rise to Candleford by Flora Thompson. This book is 700 pages long and well, nearly 700 pages long. And just to summarise, it just felt to me like it was a whole introduction and I was waiting for the story to get started. Here's the blurb. Laura is an inquiring child who is always attentive to the way of life around her, from the daily lives of the farming community to the countryside as it transforms through the seasons. At the age of 14, she leaves the hamlet of Lark-Rise to work for the postmistress of the village of Candleford. There, her eyes are open to wider horizons as she comes under the wing of the intoxicating Dorcas Lane. Um, I'm glad I read it because I had such fun chatting with Katie and Lauren on all about the archers about this book and recording the episode but my goodness Jiminy Joseph it's a it's a long slog and there are far better books for me set in that time that I would enjoy reading there are there were fun times to be had but overall it it wasn't my favorite book but the experience of reading it was my favourite book. So anyway, she's waffling. But as I say, once I'd finished that, I thought, right, I've got to go on to another book, something completely different. And that book was Carrie by Stephen King. Now, there was a reason why I decided to read this, because a long time ago, a long time ago, she says, in, was it May, I was reviewing a book by Joanne Harris called Broken Light. And then a book club I was in was featuring this book. So I thought, oh, I should just reacquaint myself with it. I'd already given my copy to somebody else to read, so I couldn't read it again. And I was listening to an interview with Joanne Harris, and she was talking about how there are some similarities in that book to the to the book Carrie by Stephen King. And it wasn't a retelling, but it was just an, an ode to Carrie. So I thought, I'm going to read this. Now, in my mind, Carrie is a girl sitting up in a bed with her head swizzling round and going a rather unattractive colour green. So that's what I thought. Turns out that's that's not Carrie. (laughs) That's something else. So I don't know how I was thinking about that. Let me read you the blurb on this one. Carrie White has a gift, the gift of telekinesis. To be invited to prom night by Tommy Ross is a dream come true for Carrie, the first step towards social acceptance by her high school colleagues. But events will take a decidedly macabre turn on that horrifying and endless night as she is forced to exercise her terrible gift on the town that mocks and loathes her. Uh, there we go. What did I think about this book? I loved it. It wasn't as horrible filled with horror as I was thinking. I don't know why, but I just, I enjoyed it. It's brilliantly written. It's It's got these alternating sort of newspaper articles in the story. I like the characters. I was drawn in by it. I just thought it was great. I need to read more Stephen King. What is happening to me? I don't know. Anyway, so the final book is Fahrenheit 451, 451 by Ray Bradbury. Let me read you the blurb of this one. Guy Montag is a fireman. His job is to destroy the most illegal of commodities, the source of all discord and unhappiness, the printed book. Montag never questions the destruction or his own bland life until he has shown a past where people didn't live in fear and a present where one sees the world through ideas. Montag starts hiding books in his home. Soon they'll make him run for his life. Now, this book was first published 1976? And yet it's a book that you read now and you just think, oh my goodness, this is so much of our time, you know, with books being banned and I thought it was an incredible read. At times I found it quite hard to read just because of the format, particularly at the beginning. It took me a while to get into it. It's not a, and here we are in the story, and this is what's happening, and this is what's going on. It just takes a bit more working your way through. But I'm glad I read it. Would I read it again? No. But I'm I'm glad I read it. I'm glad I have the knowledge of that book. And yeah, I'd certainly pass it on to other people to have a read. Anyway, I've waffled. We need to get to the end. What books have I included today? I've included West Hart Kill by Dan McDorman, And we've had Lawrence Kilpatrick on from The Pigeonhole. I've also reviewed Lark Rise to Candleford by Flora Thompson. Carrie by Stephen King and Fahrenheit 451 451 by Ray Bradbury. Those are your books. I'm going to send you out in the world. I hope your day is okay. I hope your day is good. I hope your day is good. I hope you have a good book to read, a good cup of tea to drink and of course a good biscuit to eat while you read. Just look after yourselves and I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the QuickBook Reviews Podcast. That's enough books.
1: Said no one. Ever. See you again soon.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.